Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, before we jump into Bible class, uh, we are, are currently finishing up just the, the very last chapter of Professor Marquardt's book, The Saving Truth Doctrine for Lay People. Um, if you are just joining us uh, or you have joined us recently for this study, uh, it is available as a Kindle edition, which is probably the cheapest, uh, or you can order the book. Uh, these are published by uh, Luther Academy, uh, which is a, a great uh, organization uh, within... I don't know, technically not within the Missouri Synod, but uh, run by Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, that puts out a lot of excellent teaching materials. I wanted to today, you noticed I have some books spread out here. Uh, we've covered a lot of topics uh, through Marquardt's book, and I always like to give people some resources. I've had a few people this last week that have asked for books on some of those various topics, so I thought, heck, I'll just cover it all at one time and give you uh, a few that I think would be helpful for you, okay? I'm going to kind of go backwards uh, just briefly here from what Marquardt has talked about. If you're looking for a, a good book that dives into uh, philosophy, we've talked about postmodernism, uh, that sort of thing. Gene Edward Veith Jr.'s book, Postmodern Times, A Christian Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. Um, this one, um, for some of you, it might put you to sleep at night. But it's, it's well worth the extra time to dive into if you're interested in studying some of, of where, uh, you know, the rise of humanism as it has affected our postmodern culture. That's a really good book, okay? Uh, when we talk about creation and evolution, there's a lot of resources out there. I certainly would commend to you almost anything from Ken Ham, which is Answers in Genesis. Uh, keep in mind that uh, Ken Ham um, is, uh, is Reformed, is Baptist. Uh, and uh, does not <laughs> believe that baptism now saves you. Uh, he would believe that it's a, a decision that you make, um, nor would he uh, believe that the Lord's body and blood is physically present in the Lord's Supper. Now, all that being said, uh, his explanation of, of Genesis uh, and sticking to what God has given us in his holy word is absolutely marvelous. So on creation issues, just don't get into church stuff with Ken Ham and you'll be fine, okay? Uh, but for example, I've said this before, last summer when we went down and visited the replica of the ark, um, it amazed me, and we walked through the whole thing, we read every single piece of information they had, and not once was the Bible verse mentioned about how uh, just as Noah and his family, eight souls in all, were saved by means of the ark, so baptism now saves you. That scripture passage was very blatantly ignored <laughs> and not used which is unfortunate, okay? Uh, so sometimes we have to uh, take, you know, and, and be, as Jesus told the disciples, be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Uh, and so uh, any of Ken Ham's stuff uh, in Genesis is pretty good. There also is another author by the name of uh, Philip Johnson. Um, again, not Lutheran, but he has written a number of books on defeating Darwinism, um, as well as some other kind of postmodern, contemporary things, subversive essays on evolution, law, and culture. So any of the stuff by Philip Johnson is pretty good. Uh, college students, if you're in the middle of a class and you're looking for some material, email me or come see you and I'll put you, uh, come see me and I'll put you in, in place, uh, in touch with some good books. Uh, Eric Von Fong, uh, In Search of the Genesis World, debunking, uh, debunking the Evolution Myth. This is a little thicker with small print. So this would be another one if you're having problems sleeping at night, but you want to learn something for five minutes, um, but it's a really good one. 
If you want something short and sweet, I have that too. Uh, Joel Heck, uh, pastor in the Missouri Synod, professor, uh, wrote a short little book, Creation from God's Perspective, In the Beginning, God. And this is just a great little book published by uh, CPH uh, that goes through that as well. Um, Professor John Pless has written a number of books, just, um, he's written a lot of stuff. I would commend to you anything by Professor John Pless. Uh, he was the uh, pastor slash chaplain up at University Lutheran Chapel uh, in uh, Minneapolis, uh, University of Minnesota, uh, St. Paul. And uh, uh, Reverend David Kind has been there since, uh, and he's, he's excellent as well. But Professor Pless has written some good stuff. Uh, if you're just looking to get into, you know, uh, working with Scripture, that sort of thing, he's written a little book called Handling the Word of Truth, uh, Law and Gospel in the Church Today. Um, there also, he's written a small catechism on human life. So if you're looking for some additional information on life issues, um, not just where we stand as Missouri Synod Lutherans, but what does the Bible say about fill-in-the-blank life issues? And that's a short little one. Um, Professor Pless is really good at writing for lay people. He does a good job with that. If you're looking for apologetics, I'm almost done. Um, Corey Moss and uh, Adam Francisco, uh, um, and I know, I know both these guys, uh, actually. Uh, Dr. Francisco was up at our Fort Wayne Seminary for a while. I knew him. Uh, he was actually a Navy SEAL for a while and then <laughs> went to seminary and then decided he wanted to do a Ph.D. And he teaches, he's kind of our resident ex- expert on the Islam faith, uh, teaches out at Concordia University in Irvine. Um, he was at Fort Wayne and then he went to Irvine but this is making the case for Christianity, responding to modern objectives, objections. So if you're looking just for some conversation points when you're talking with people in the workplace, when you're talking with other friends and family, uh, this is a good little book that'll just kind of give you uh, a good foundation in apologetics, okay? So that's a good one, okay? Jonathan Fisk, who is a classmate of mine and uh, we played basketball together at the seminary, has written a couple of books. His most recent one is Echo, Unbroken Truth Worth Repeating. Uh, His first one was Seven Sins You Want to Commit on a Regular Basis or something like that. (laughs) That's not right. He's going to email me and say, you got the book title wrong. I can't remember the name of it. Just Google Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Uh, His stuff's pretty good. Uh, If you ever watched any of his YouTube, he's not for everybody. Um, So a little more of a a millennial uh, in some respects, okay? Uh, last one, uh, just regarding family, marriage, parenting, Gene Edward Veith has also written a book with his uh, daughter, who is an LCMS deaconess, entitled Family Vocation, God's Calling in Marriage, Parenting, and Childhood. And I think this is one of the options I gave to, we have a new women's Bible study group, wine, cheese, no complaining about husbands or boyfriends, I don't know what you're going to do, but... So once a month, the ladies are going to gather together and they're going to uh, uh, study a book. So I've given them a few options there. This is a really good one just in general. Um, and one of the last things that I wanted to do, and this is a topic we don't often talk about, unfortunately, and that's the office of woman. Okay? So obviously in the Missouri Synod, we do not ordain women. Okay? Now hopefully you know why. Because Scripture says that uh, women are not to uh, have authority over men uh, in that place, and uh, the office of pastors is limited to that. Uh, and uh, some might say, "Well, that's just that's discrimination." I say, "Well, <laughs> that's what God says." But what does it mean to be a good Christian woman? What does that look like in today's day and age? Okay, 
Uh, and so this book actually by Fritz Zerbst, uh, The Office of Women in the Church, a Study in Practical uh, Theology. Um, this was actually published originally back in 19, it's been reprinted, 1954. Do you, do you read that? You've, had, you've read this one probably. I think it was 1954, yeah, so been around a while, but it's uh, very relevant still for today, okay? So got lots of resources there, so if you're looking for something, um, just let me know, okay? I've got more books than this in my office, and we have a really good church library, too, that has slowly grown. Uh, if you come across something you think would be good for the rest of our congregation, uh, please let us know, because uh, we have some funds to order some books and, uh, and get those up there, okay? Any questions on any of that? That was my five to seven minute just kind of introduction with resources. All good? Okay. All right, I don't know much else. I'm not a smart man, but I do know how to pray. So let's pray and begin Bible class. The Lord be with you. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that they may obtain their petitions. Make them to ask such things as shall please you. Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Okay, if you have the Marquardt's book, we're on the bottom of page 176. Uh, we're picking up at the last uh, full paragraph. And this is under the heading, Why Then Christianity? Professor J.N.D., Sir Norman uh, Anderson, then at the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies in the University of London, was told once by a Muslim colleague that what mattered in religion was not so much the truth or falsity of the basic facts, but whether the religion in question made a person happier and more helpful. You'll have, you're, you'll, you probably have heard or you've thought this to yourself even in terms of picking a church. Is it a happy church, right? Is it a church that makes me feel good? I mean, as in, and we always talk as pastors and lay leaders, you know, I mean, how friendly are we, right? So you might go visit a church and, and uh, my goodness, could have a, a bang-up law gospel sermon, could use the liturgy, but you're like, oh, that's just not a friendly church, okay? What are the most important things regarding a church, okay? Or I've got a few, you know, uh, pastor friends, they're not the most dynamic preachers, if you will, or even teachers in that way, but their theology and their content, I would put like way above where I'm at, okay, a loudmouth or others, but how do people determine sometimes what's good or what's bad based on how they feel, right? So emotions, whether it makes me happy. So we have to be very careful uh, about that. It's not that those things don't have their place in terms of being able to communicate uh, and to teach and that sort of thing. But ultimately for us in the church, and especially when we talk about religion, it's founded first and foremost that Scripture is what? Scripture is fact. It's not fiction. So we have an ongoing discussion even in our extended family uh, with uh, um, uh, um, you know, someone who basically has, has said, um, the Bible's not fact. It's not true. There might be parts of it that are true, but not all of it, right? So that obviously leads into a whole nother, right, McKay boys? How do, you, how do you then argue? What's your foundation for discussion? And you really don't have one because one, you know, if, you know we as Christians are going to argue from this is what Scripture says about what? Sexuality, about human life, uh, about creation, I mean, all of those things. And so when you don't have that foundation, it gets very difficult to, uh, to, to talk. 
Okay. All right, back to Marquardt here. So uh, religion in question, uh, the question is whether it makes someone happier or more helpful, right? Uh, it, you know, it, so if, if you're going to church to try and become a better Christian, you're probably going to church for the wrong reason. So what's the primary reason you should go to church? Let's just, let's just summarize a little bit of catechism. What's the primary reason you, to what? Yeah, to receive forgiveness of sins, right? To, to be welcomed into the presence of God, which is supernatural or sacramental is the word we use and should use, to come in the presence of God and for him to bestow gifts then upon us, okay? Um, and that we receive forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, okay? That's fact, and that's what Jesus commanded the disciples to do and why that continued, okay? Anders' response to this widespread spread pragmatism is worth noting, quote, I replied somewhat flippantly, I fear, that when I was a boy at school, we played a football match against what was then called a lunatic asylum. And, of course, they don't call them that anymore, appropriately so. I vividly remember being locked in while we changed our clothes so that we should not get mixed up with the other lunatics. And we were told that one of the patients in that institution firmly believed that he was a poached egg and went about every day asking for a piece of toast to sit on. If he was given this, he at once became contented and amenable, while if it was withheld, he remained unhappy and fractious. But I could hardly believe that any Muslim, that I could hardly believe that my Muslim friend would regard this as an adequate religion. So what makes religion? That's the real question. Uh, Is it that just which makes you content and happy? Well, that could be anything then. This issue arose already at the beginning of the Christian era. The Roman Empire was quite sophisticated about religion. All sorts of exotic new cults were regularly brought to Rome by its victorious armies from the remote outposts of the empire. Rome would gladly have accommodated the Christian religion too had it not been for the latter's exclusive terms. The insistence of Christians that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Do we still claim that? Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Now that's that's exclusive, and that that's a hang-up for a lot of people. Okay. Uh, so Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and life, not Jupiter and Venus, Isis and Osiris, Mithra and Cybele, and the rest. Well, that infuriated tolerant Romans. Now apply that to our society today. Christians were perceived as arrogant and subversive atheists. That was a dramatic pause. Yet the Christians' grating insistence on truth and fact also had to be respected. The other religions all had, quote, once upon a time stories to tell, of course. There were no historical particulars, though, and certainly no eyewitnesses. It proved enormously impressive when Christianity came along and calmly described the most extraordinary events which had happened in dateable time and in real space beginning in Bethlehem under Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria and culminating at a cross in an empty tomb after a public trial and mob scenes before Pontius Pilate. So if you've ever wondered why there's some of those mentions of certain things in Scripture, God has placed them there for good reason. Okay? Do you know that for many years, uh, even modern critics and scholars questioned whether Pontius Pilate was real? Did you know that? That went on a long time in the church until what? Pastors or others, those who have studied, what did they discover? It was actually up in uh, uh, around Nazareth. Anybody know? Dr. Paul Meyer talks about this. 
they uncovered in a arena of sorts, okay, where people would gather for games, concerts, uh, uh, oratorical debates, and that sort of thing. They uncovered an arena with steps, and engraved in the steps was that this arena was dedicated to who of all people? Pontius Pilate. And so now all of a sudden he's real. Why is he real? Because archaeological evidence was found doing that. Okay. So I think the more that we study, you know, not only science and, and history and that, um, from my perspective with my limited study of history, uh, the Bible has just continued to be proven more true and more factual as time goes on, which it amazes me sometimes that people will reject all that, especially in light of the evidence. Okay? But we don't believe the Bible is true because we have an inscription with Pontius Pilate on it. We believe it because God says so. Okay? Sorry, I needed a cup of coffee. Um, so these reports, furthermore, had not come from scheming scholars, overwrite, uh, 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 boy, I've, I've aesthetic, aesthetes, or religious visionaries. They came from down-to-earth folk like fishermen and tax officials, people full of a very normal reluctance to believe. So how, then, was this unlikely, unlikely crew brought to its later unshakable convictions? Certainly not with breathing exercises and meditations and vision-prone grottos. No. The Lord simply made the apostles trot along with him for three years in the broad light of day, with their eyes and ears open and their minds fully engaged. In the end, he rose from the dead, as he had said he would, knowing full well that anyone determined to reject the claims of God would, quote, not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Uh, great text, and we referenced that in the early service this morning. Late service people, you have to wait for that reference. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's really amazing when you look at uh, the, just the, the amount, and I didn't realize some of this until I went to seminary. Um, you know, the, the, so we have all of the writings, not all the writings, but we have the, uh, uh, the testimony of the apostles, right? Uh, did you also know, and we don't include it, of course, in the canon in terms of the New Testament, but the apostles, are dis or I should say the disciples that the apostles taught, and we refer to, to them in a, in a broad, sweeping uh, summary as the early church fathers. And so we have writings from disciples who were taught by some of the actual 12 apostles. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you be curious to hear what they would have to say? That doesn't mean that they necessarily get everything right, uh, but that's, that's why we study that. Luther especially encour encouraged a study of that. That further validates even some of the, the facts of Scripture that we have some of those writings. Okay, very interesting. Any questions or comments? Okay, let's move on. Next page, everything all hinges on the truth of the resurrection. And Dr. Jeff Gibbs, one of my uh, professors at Concordia Seminary, one of my favorite professors, he and his wife Renee have done a lot of work uh, in Lutherans for Life. Um, you know, he, and he actually wrote a commentary uh, on Matthew, but uh, his point that he would hammer home with every single class he would teach and even not just at the seminary, if you ever went to a continuing education or you heard him speak, he'd always talk about how everything hinges upon the resurrection. Okay? So when the modern Bible translator J.B. Phillips came to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he was struck by the impact of this matter-of-fact account. Quite suddenly I realized that no man had ever written such words before. As I pressed on with the task of translation, I came to feel utterly convinced of the truth of the resurrection. Something of literally life and death importance had happened in mortal history, 
and I was reading the actual words of people who had seen Christ after his resurrection. So these are eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts, uh, and not just one, mind you, of all those who had witnessed all that our Lord had said and done. Uh, The Apostle John refers to them as signs, the miracles, the wonders, his crucifixion, his, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We have eyewitness accounts of this, and according to Scripture, testimony or fact is always to be established by two or three witnesses, okay? Uh, and we have that. Now, compare that to, um, oh boy, let's pick on Mormonism. How many people witnessed uh, the uh, seer stones uh, or uh, the Uma and the Thurum? I don't know if I'm saying the words correctly. Uh, and so Joseph Smith translated the golden plates that became known as the Book of Mormon. He's the only guy that saw them. There's no eyewitnesses. And not only that, there's, there's no even any other evidence, archaeologically or otherwise, to prove that there was some lost race of, of Hebrews running around Upper New York State or Pennsylvania. Right? Uh, and so with Christianity, you know, we have all those things to bolster those claims. Okay, uh, and even with uh, take Islam. Okay, I'm probably going to get some hate email for this one, but uh, Muhammad. When did he receive all of his revelation and visit vision? Anybody know? Privately alone in the desert. Any substantiation for it? No. Okay, and and read and study your history of Islam as well. Very violent religion as it started. That doesn't mean that all Muslims today. Subscribe to that, but study your history, okay? Uh, understand that. So we start to talk about faith, you know, world religions. It's always good to, 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 to look at all that, okay? Uh, so something of literally life and death importance happened in mortal history, and I was reading the actual words. So in a broadcast discuss- discussion with another translator of the Gospels, Dr. E.V. Rowe, Phillips asked, did you get the feeling that the whole material is extraordinarily alive? And Rowe replied, it changed me. My work changed me, and I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. Now, Luther, of course, had a similar experience, right? I mean, he gave everything up to become an Augustinian monk, right? He took holy vows before God and before any of his family that were there and all the rest, saying that he would support the teachings of the church, the Pope, okay, uh, his spiritual father, and then that he was he was going to do that. And Luther, boy, he went at it because it was it was a law situation where he had he had to perform, he had to do that. And so Luther went at it. Never could find any peace or contentment with that. He's studying scripture, and he comes across across this concept that one is justified basically by grace through faith. Okay, in, in simple terms. Wow. You mean I'm not justified by my works or my action? And it was all of a sudden through the reading and studying of that word that, wow, you know, this word is actually alive and real and now it's doing an amazing thing. Okay? So when we look at Scripture in, in, in that way, or let me just back up, when we just let Scripture do its work, the Word of God is living and active, Right? And so that's why, for example, you know, uh, when we have when we gather together as the body of Christ, we don't trot every Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know, up there to read Scripture. We don't bring the little kids up and have them put on a skit for you about the Word of God. 
We simply read the Word of God. Is it a little boring sometimes? Go ahead, you can admit it. Yes. Who reads the Word of God to you? Who reads the Word of God to you? Jesus. Sorry for the loud mic. Jesus is reading to you, teaching you from Holy Scripture through who? Through those that are called to publicly be the vivivox Christe, the very voice of Christ in that place, right? So that's, that's the medium and the means that he said. A lot of people misunderstand that, okay? Now, you also have given, given authority in the home, especially if you're a father and or a mother, and that's why Scripture does not talk about individuality. It talks about households, which means sometimes down the road, Mr. Chuck Long, we have to talk a little bit about our church constitution because we need to emphasize households, not individuals. And we're not going to cover that right now, but I'm just going to tell you, it's coming down the road because that's where Scripture goes. It's about households. Now, that's completely different from our American culture, which says what? My rights. I'm an individual. Where does that get you? It gets you away from God's order of things. Okay? All right, now enough for that. Some of you are like, I'm done listening to him today. He, he went there. Got to ask the questions. Where does Scripture lead? How does Scripture intend to teach? Right? Luther wrote his catechism. How does it begin? As the head of the household should do what? Should teach. Parents, you got kids at home? You're responsible for teaching them. Not the pastors, not the Sunday school teachers. Do the pastors and Sunday school teachers help with that? They sure do. They sure do. They're there to assist you. But you will be held responsible as parents for how you've taught your kids. Okay, all authority flows from that. Even in public schools, now I'm on, a, I'm on a roll now, but teachers in a public school, whose authority do they serve under? You as parents. Okay, all right, let's get back. That was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, my goodness, you're going to fire me tomorrow. I just know it. Sometimes I go home for Bible class and said, yeah, I think I'm done. They're going to kick me out of church. Um, where are we at here? Okay. Roe replied, so it changed me. The Word of God changed me. It changed my, my perspective. I mean, like Luther, I'm just imagining he grew up in this environment, and what a complete change. And you talk to people who have come from other religions and become Christians, and it's just, there's such freedom. Uh, or for some of you that have come from other denominations where, you know, learning about law and gospel or receiving the Lord's body and blood, it's like a whole new thing, isn't it? And it's just, it's just amazing, and you can't explain it because it, it's sacramental, okay? Same thing with baptism. I was talking with somebody this last week, and, you know, Pastor, you know, when my kids were baptized, it changed them. I said, really? What did they, did their hair grow longer? Uh, you know, how did it, I, mean, I, I knew what they were getting at, but no, it, it changed them. How did it change them? The Holy Spirit came, right? Um, and uh, may not be able to point to, to, to physical things per se, but wow, what a great gift, okay? Um, okay, so in a, I came to the conclusion these words be, bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. In a similar vein, the exquisite wordsmith uh, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, quote, is it not extraordinary to the point of being a miracle that so loose and ill-constructed a narrative in an antique translation of a dubious text should after so many centuries still have power to quell and dominate a restless, opinionated, over-exercised, and undernourished 20th century mind? You know what? I would say that our, you know, when we talk about everything that's going on in the world today, and you're, you're probably... 
you're either fed up with it or you're confused or you're hurt in various ways. You know, what do you need? What does the world need? The Word of God. The Word of God. And so that's something we need to, I think, as a church, be a little more active at in terms of evangelism, which is the Word of God, the gospel, okay? How can, how can we, we, we get that word out there, okay? Um, good, good questions, okay? Evangelism committee, think about that. And not just evangelism, I think that's just, you know, and we're doing some of that now. We've had some, I've had some great contacts from people who have watched our Bible studies and our services online um, and, and, and people, you know, around the world. And, uh, and that's really interesting. Of course, that's not the only means for that. But, uh, you know, in our current community, how do we, how do we um, lovingly but directly, you know, speak, preach, and teach the Word of God to our community? Right? Mr. Long, I think you and I were talking a little bit about that. I'm going to pick it on you. I pick on somebody each week, so, so you're my guy today. We were talking about what types of things. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. So what kind of things, I mean, can we do as a church to, to, to create those opportunities? And, and I think, one, train you up. Uh, because it's important, you know, you have opportunity for conversation. Um, not everybody is gifted to be a teacher. Uh, not everybody, obviously, is called to be an evangelist. But, uh, you know, you have conversations with people. It's important to know what you believe, why you believe it. Uh, and, and, and the Holy Spirit will certainly work through that. It's all about working through his word, okay? Um, and uh, and invite, him, invite him to church, okay? Uh, let's move on here. Uh, so the dubious, is that where I'm at? The dubious nature of the text is actually more rhetoric than reality. Oft quoted is the verdict of Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, a former director and principal librarian of the British Museum. Quote, the interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So when we were taught uh, Greek uh, at seminary, uh, and we were given our Nestle Alans. What what uh, what version of Nestle Alan did you guys have in seminary? Remember, was it 24, 25? Any re- recall? 27? Oh, this. <laughs> you, I don't know that you're that old, Pastor Oldman. So I think we were on the 27th edition of the Nestle. And 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 let me let me just back up a little bit for those of you who have no idea what I just asked him. Okay. So the Greek text that we have, okay, um, the New Testament, there are many different sources. There's many different copies. So when, when we would read through, you know, a text and we're translating it, one of the things we would do is look at what's called the apparatus. It's at the bottom of the page. Think of it almost like your footnotes for your study Bible, except here in those footnotes, it would tell us where there would be very minor variations in the text, Okay, uh, where perhaps one copy has this word recorded as plural instead of singular, things like that. Okay, uh, or occasionally uses a word that might be a synonym of of the same word. Okay, so when we translate scripture, we take all that evidence together. The amazing thing, though, as I was as I was learning about this, was the variances are very small. They're so minute, right? To the point that I had classmates at seminary. Why are you even bothering with this, right? But of course, the professors want us to learn to, uh, you know, to to be able to look at all of the evidence that we have, uh, and at the same time, it also teaches us that wow, you know, of all the manuscripts we have for all of the books that have ever been written in the history of civilization, 
We have more copies of the Bible than anything else. And guess what? They're more in line and accurate than each, with, the, with each other than any other documents. Okay? And so that's some interesting stuff you can study when you talk apologetics with people. Okay? All right. Questions or anything? You're just kind of soaking some of it in. I get it. All right. Um, okay, where am I at? Both the authenticity. As for the idea of the New Testament, is that right? Offers campfire stories and legends. Professor Shadwald, the distinguished gracist of Tubingen University, replies that if the New Testament with its conscientious interests in the facts is legend, then no scholarly study of ancient history exists at all. So if you kick the Bible out in terms of studying it as history, you've got to kick everything else out that we have as well, Okay, which I would totally agree with. The Oxford classicist A.N. Sherwin-White likewise finds it astonishing. Quote, that while Greco-Roman historians have been growing in confidence, the 20th century study of the gospel narratives, starting from no less promising material, has taken so gloomy a turn in the development of form criticism that the more advanced exponents of it, of it, of it apparently maintain, so far as an amateur can understand the matter, and that might be kind of where some of you are at, that the historical Christ is unknowable and the history of his mission cannot be written. Right? And so, you know, when you talk with other people, or I mentioned that, you know, we, we have a, a, a member of the extended family who now has made the claim that the Bible is not completely the word of God. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, how can we believe it? And, of course, we always get the, the thing, well, Jesus is love. And Jesus just loves everybody, Right? Well, yeah, but Jesus also drove the money changers out of the temple. Uh, Jesus also confronted the woman who was, you know, had been living with five men, and none of them were her husband. <laughs> I mean, so, you, you know, you, you take it all together. So Jesus is confronting, you know, this is what sin is. He's here to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness, uh, but to claim that, that, that Scripture uh, is not God's word or to ignore it, uh, you, you, you might as well throw all the other historical documents that you study in school out as well. So the point here is not the inspiration and inerrancy of the sacred text, which is an article of faith. The present point is simply the New Testament's historical integrity. In this sense, Sherwin-White says that to reject the basic historicity of the book of Acts, for instance, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. And so we take many things for granted, I think, in the, in the church today, or we've just forgotten what the Bible says about it, okay? Uh, for example, oh, Pastor Grady, we should do this real quick. Who should take the Lord's body and blood? Oh, great question. Okay? Now, you're, you're, most of you, not, not all of you, but most of you are raised Missouri Synod. When do you get the Lord's body and blood in the Missouri Synod? It's when I got it. Now, take, go ahead, tell me. That's okay. When you're in eighth grade and you complete confirmation classes, correct? Is that fair? Correct me if I'm misstating it, okay? Now, who's got a study Bible with them? Could you look back in your concordance, see if you find the word confirmation anywhere in the Bible? Or, or eighth grade, 13 years of age? No. So, what does Scripture teach us about receiving the Lord's body and blood? What does it teach us? A man must examine himself before he eats the body and drinks the blood, which means before somebody takes communion, they should be able to do what? Know what sin is, okay, which means, you know, they should, they should know the Ten Commandments because that summarizes. They should know what sin is. They should be sorry for it, 
They should also have faith in the words of Jesus, right? So when Jesus says, take, eat, take, drink for the forgiveness of sins, okay, your faith is going to say what? I want that. I need that. Why? Why? Because I'm a sinner, right? And I need and desire what the Lord has, right? Um, and so here would be an example of, where, you know, does Scripture set an age for receiving the Lord's body and blood? Does it? Nowhere. It's about faith. It's about the ability to examine oneself, okay? Um, and, and being able to do that now means that there's a basic knowledge and understanding of that. Luther hated the term confirmation. He wrote a lot about it because the Roman Catholic Church took the word confirmation and still today turned it into a sacrament, Okay? Now, should you continue to learn and study? Should you publicly confess your faith before the congregation? Absolutely. But to be fair, if you're in the divine service, you publicly confess your faith every Sunday, do you not? You confess the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, you confess you're a sinner. <laughs> I mean, so there's a constant ongoing confession. And so my point is this, okay? One of the things that, and we've talked about this in Bible class, but this year, okay, we're going to be offering for those parents that want to make use of it the opportunity for First Communion. That simply means that if their child, their youth, is able to examine themselves, knows the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, okay, uh, can, can simply summarize baptism from Matthew 28, might know that text, can know the words of institution, okay, um, that may have that faith, that the parents will bring them to the pastor and say, hey, <laughs> I think my kid is ready for what? What? The Lord's Supper. Okay? And then we as pastors are going to say, nope, sorry. They're not eighth grade yet. You see where I'm going with this? So that's where we need to study what Scripture says about it. Okay? Now that doesn't, and I don't want you to misunderstand, confirmation, confirmation classes, not bad, good thing. Okay? Confirmation in terms of a public recognition, a coming of age, um, and obviously, I don't think any of us here would say that at eighth grade, you're an adult. Raise your hand if you think eighth graders are adults. Anyone? We kind of say in the church that they're adult members when they get confirmed. Did you know that? I mean, we, we kind of say that. And that's not really fair to them either. Okay? Um, and uh, so, but we'll continue to do, I mean, the process of confirmation, which will, you know, kind of stay at eighth grade. It could go lower to seventh grade or even sixth grade. Um, as, you know, some kids are able to handle some material a little earlier than others. So the other thing we're doing this year is we're going to open up confirmation classes to fifth and sixth graders as well. So somebody could start at fifth grade, and they could get confirmed at sixth grade, okay, uh, if they're ready for it. That'll be between the parents and the pastors, Right? Because we need to know where the child is at, okay? You could go the traditional route and start at 7th grade and be done at 8th grade, okay? And in the midst of those four years, the question is, when are they ready to take communion? For some, it may not be until 7th or 8th grade. They may not be able to examine themselves yet, okay? Um, but could you have a 5th grader, a 6th grader, a 4th grader that knows the basics of Scripture, desires the Lord's body and blood and is repentant? Is that possible? What do you think? I think it's absolutely possible, okay? Um, now, the last thing I'll say about that is some people, well, does that mean you're going to start communing babies? Because people say, if you're not going to set an age limit, and the answer is no, why? What can a baby not do? Examine themselves. So there needs to be 
in understanding uh, of sin and of contrition. And that's really, so what are we trying to do? We're trying to put more of the work on who? <laughs> the parents. I mean, we're still going to teach, teach classes, okay? But parents are responsible for those children, okay? And, and hopefully, you, you know, you're, you're working. To, I mean, we do the catechism in Sunday school, and we're going to be doing a little bit more of that now with some of our new curriculum as well. Um, and so kids will have some of that. Okay, any questions on that? Any rotten fruit anybody wants to throw? Um, the Missouri, yeah, yes, please. Pauline. I'm going to repeat your question so they can hear it on the Internet. Do the Greek Orthodox give babies communion? Yes, I believe they do. Okay, and that is also part of the process of uh, uh, in in anointing or, cri- or christening, uh, chrismation with oil and with honey. Okay, um, so uh, yes, my understanding is they do. Okay, you want to follow up on that question? She said, "Do the Greek Orthodox uh, commune babies?" Oh, what their rationale was. Well, we, 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 have, uh, we, have some, uh, we have some Missouri Synod pastor friends who advocate for infant communion. They're around. They're, they're out there. I, I've, I've got a couple of buddies, and we debate this all the time. They don't, they don't practice it in their congregation because we as a Missouri Synod have said that's not a good thing to do. Okay? And, and they would say, well, you know, the, the, the gifts are for everybody. Jesus said take eight, take and drink. And, and of course, I... Uh, along with pretty much most of us in Missouri Senate, would say you need to be able to examine yourself. There needs to be able to be a recognition of sin. That would be a linchpin passage for us. Um, and uh, so um, I don't know that I'm prepared to answer your question why they do that. I remember there being some history behind that. Um, uh, one of the early church fathers does talk about communing infants. Uh, back, I believe, don't quote me on this, Late first, early second century pastors that have been around longer than I and studied more than me. Do you want to help me answer this question? You're just going to shake your head and leave me hanging. Okay. Yeah. So, so there, 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 there is a you know some reference to that. Keep in mind when you have practices within the church, normally they occurred at some point, and somebody taught it or did it, and it kind of caught on, and it kind of continues. Um, and so, um, yeah. Sorry, I don't have more for you on that. My apologies. Any other questions or comments there? Okay. But here's the point, and the reason I shared some of that with you, and this will be you know, coming out just a little bit in the next month. Those of you that have kids will be getting a letter from us as pastors talking a little bit about this, is where do we get this from? Where do we get all these teachings from? The B-I-B-L-E. So we're, we, we want to always try and be faithful and teach what Scripture says on that, okay, on those various topics. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's the most important thing, okay? Okay, uh, well, should we do another paragraph? What time is it? 1028. Um, so let me reread this paragraph because it, it might cement it just a little bit. The point here is not the inspiration and errancy of the sacred text, which is an article of faith, okay? The present point is simply the New Testament's historical integrity. In this sense, Sherwin-White says that to reject the basic historicity of the book of Acts, for instance, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. We may conclude with a literary judgment and a legal one from C.S. Lewis, who writes, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. 
I know that not one of them is like this, like the Bible. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, though it may no doubt contain errors, pretty close up to the facts, nearly as close as Boswell, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The writer who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. So Sir Norman Anderson, who cites the above from C.S. Lewis, records his own considered judgment in a study styled as, quote, a lawyer sifts the evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The idea that these stories might have been legends rather than lies seems at first sight somewhat more plausible. Had it been possible to date the records a century or two after the event, and repeated attempts to do precisely this have been made by a series of brilliant scholars, the suggestion might have been feasible. But the attempt has decisively failed crushed under a weight of contrary evidence, and there can be no reasonable doubt that the testimony to the resurrection can be traced back to the very first decade after the event. Okay? I mean, the, the evidence when you, when you jump into it is amazing and astonishing. So it seems meaningless, therefore, to speak of legend when we are dealing, not with stories handed down from generation to generation, but accounts given by the eyewitnesses themselves. So when you are reading Scripture, you certainly are reading the Word of God, but especially in the New Testament, you're reading eyewitness accounts by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, by John, by the Apostle Paul. Okay? Um, accounts given by the eyewitnesses or attributed to them while they were still present to confirm or deny them. So, last paragraph, the end of the book. From the very beginning, Christianity wished either to be accepted at face value or not at all. It is more honest to stone Jesus for blasphemy than to mutter vaguely about his, quote, great ethical teaching while rejecting his claim to be God. Faith in him is certainly more than belief in facts, but it is not less. Sages and illiterates, housewives and presidents, reformers and harlots, all are leveled before them in their common need, which only he and supply. <laughs> okay, here's what I want you to do. Um, we, we are going to start a new Bible study um, that's not going to kick off until probably September 13th. So we've got a few weeks in between. I've got a couple things I want to cover. Oh, did you turn that off already? That's okay. Um, Luther wrote a really great article on how to respond to basically the plague and <laughs> the pandemic. And so next week we're going to dive into that uh, a little bit because I think it's, it's really appropriate for everything we're dealing with today. Okay, But if you have any lingering questions uh, from our study of Marquardt, anything that was said today, please email them to me. I want to make sure to be able to address those uh, and flesh those out if you have any, anything else. Okay. Uh, and then we will we'll take uh, we'll do the study on uh, Luther's writings on the plague. Professor Pless actually wrote a short little Bible study on a couple of Luther things that talk about uh, just plague, societal issues which we're dealing with now still, and how do Christians respond to that? Uh, and so we're going to do that, and then we'll have a new study ready for you September 13th. Thanks to those who have emailed me suggestions for the Bible study. Um, I'm going to have to pick something out of a hat. 
Uh, but I'd love to hear from more of you, and thanks for those that have responded already. Uh, we'll, we'll try and, and find something that's going to continue where we've been and uh, go where we're going, okay? Any other questions or comments? Okay, take a deep breath. The Lord is with you. You've been rescued, and uh, oh, yes, Mary. How does the church library work? Well, it's got shelves, and... <laughs> so the, the church library is down the hallway. There is uh, should be a little sheet of paper sitting on one of the shelves where you can sign out the book. And then when you come and sign it back in, I think you're just supposed to scratch off your, your, your name, is my understanding. Okay? We've talked about digitizing that or putting that online using library thing or something like that. We're not quite there yet. Uh, so right now, I, I'm pretty sure our library is arranged by the Dewey Decimal System. Is that correct? thought we had a librarian in the room here. We have a couple people that do that. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. That's all I got. Good, good. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for your time and attention today. Hope you learned a little something. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.